the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Jeremiah. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. And thank you that you love me enough that you've corrected me and pursued me because you don't want me to remain as I am. Even in Proverbs, we read Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent His rebuke because the Lord disciplines those He loves as a father, the son He delights in. If some of you have been feeling the discipline of the Lord in your lives, then chalk it up for the fact that God loves you. Some of you are like, well, He loves me a lot. Well, okay, He loves you a lot. But it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you about how God is a loving Father. A loving Father is someone who desires your best interest, someone who tells you when you need correction and guidance. A loving Father offers discipline and instruction when needed. Pastor Gary explains that it's the same with God. He loves you too much to see you not transform into who He's called you to be. He will gently walk and guide you from glory to glory. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, as he continues his message, A Prayer for Idle Hearts. In Jeremiah, chapter 10, and the the culture of Jeremiah's day is, that the, that the Jewish people have forsaken the true and living God and, and instead have started to worship the gods of the neighboring nations, principally two gods, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and Baal, the god of the Canaanites. Now, we're going to find later in the book of Jeremiah some of the heinous, wicked acts involved in the worship of Molech and Baal, And that's for another study when we get later down the road in the book of Jeremiah. But these are the principal gods that have influenced the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people, Molech and Baal. And so they begin to carve images and they begin to make statues to worship instead of the true and living God. And chapter 10 here describes the length to which the Jewish people will go fashioning these wooden idols. If you'll look at your Bibles again at verses 3 and 4. In verse 3 it says, For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. And so they're making these idols. And Jeremiah gives us some background here about the lengths that they go to to fashion these various idols. Now, just a little side note. I'm just going to 
depart from the main theme of our study for just a moment because I, I feel like I need to address these particular verses because every once in a while somebody will come to me over the years and say, doesn't the Bible prohibit Christmas trees? Uh, because they'll look at these verses here, like verse 3, which talks about cutting a tree out of the forest, and verse 4 talks about adorning it with silver and gold, and some will say, and some have said to me, you know, Pastor G, there's a, there's a passage in the Bible that tells us why Christmas trees are pagan, evil, idolatrous stuff. We shouldn't have them in our houses around the time of the celebration of the birth of Christ. Okay, so I just need to address this as a side note since we're here in these, in these verses. Uh, listen, this passage has nothing to do with Christmas trees. Please note that it tells us in verse 3, a craftsman chisels it. Okay, uses a chisel and fashions it with a tool. In other words, they cut a tree down, they debranch it, and then they take a chisel and they fashion it, giving it the appearance of a, of a person, an idol, a God that they want to worship. So they chisel in eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, mouths that cannot speak, and this becomes their idol. Then they overlay it with silver and gold to make it really shiny and beautiful. It's basically a totem pole wrapped in silver. That's what it is. This, this is not a Christmas tree. This looks nothing like a Christmas tree because it isn't one. So don't get your garland all in a knot, okay? <laughs> this has nothing to do with Christmas. By the way, the Bible says in Isaiah 60 verse 13, the pine, the fir, and the cypress adorn my sanctuary, says the Lord. Okay, God created evergreen trees. They aren't to be worshiped but they certainly aren't to be looked at in every instance as some kind of an idol. By the way, also, historically speaking, the first evergreen tree was pulled into a house by Martin Luther because he wanted to celebrate Christ's birth by remembering his everlasting life and everlasting love represented in an evergreen tree. So Martin Luther started the tradition in Germany, pulling in a tree around Christmas time, celebrating the birth of Christ, adorning it with lights because Jesus is the light of the world. It was all a reminder, just symbolically speaking, about the everlasting life through Christ and the everlasting love of Christ in the evergreen tree and the lights being the light of the world. And then the Pennsylvania, it came over to America because Pennsylvania Germans, by the way, the same group that settled Lovettsville, in the 1820s, they, they carried over the tradition in the United States, and thus, you know, we've picked it up as well, but there's nothing evil or idolatrous about it. It just is symbolic to remember the everlasting life through Christ and the everlasting love of Christ. By the way, green and red, the colors of Christmas, symbolic of green, the everlasting life, red, the blood of Christ. Do your homework. Even the candy cane was invented as a reminder, the white, the purity of Christ, wrapped in the red ribbons, the blood of Christ. It's all symbolic to remind us and focus us on who Christ is. So this has nothing to do with the Christmas tree, with all due respect. And if you have that conviction, you don't need to have a Christmas tree in your house. Bring it to mine. We'll add up extra ones. <laughs> now that said, if you are cutting down a Christmas tree and hauling it into your house and adorning it and then bowing down and worshiping it, well, then that's a problem. That's idolatry. So don't do that. But otherwise, enjoy Christmas and celebrate it with traditions. All right, back to our story. When we read this story here and how they chisel out a tree and fashion it and adorn it and make it their gods, it's not only tragic and sad, but we tend to think of this as very primitive, don't we? 
This is a primitive, very you know, ignorant people who would fashion a, go- a, a God with a tool a, a, and a God that can help them, that can't save them, that can't provide for them, that can do nothing for them, and they're going to worship that instead of the true and living God who saves them, delivers them, provides for them, forgives them, helps them, and everything else. And so to, to us, it's, this seems very primitive, very foolish, and it is. And Jeremiah would agree in verse 14 of our chapter. In verse 14, he says, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. I mean, this is a senseless thing. He says, every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. And so it's easy for us to read this and to think, wow, how primitive and how foolish and, 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 how, and how senseless of these people, and, and then to think that we're all smarter than they, and, and to think that, you know, we'd never do this kind of a thing, and we'd never carve an image and bow down to it. With all due respect, by the way, to some other world religions, I had somebody come up to me a few weeks ago and talk about how their parents are still uh, very much involved in Hinduism. Hinduism, people are still bowing down to idols. There are still religions in our world where people are bowing down to images and carved idols and these kinds of things. But, but for us, you know, in our Western mindset, it's easy to look at these stories in the Bible and think, you know, we, we're smarter than they. We would, we would never bow down to an inanimate object that can't help us. But the truth be told, you don't have to carve something, pray to it, or bow down to it for something to be an idol. An idol can be a person. Billy, for example. That's from the 80s. The rest of you would have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Billy Idol, by the way, got his U.S. citizenship last week. So anyway, look it up. You'll get a kick out of it later. But anyhow... But seriously, an idol can be a person, an idol can be a thing, an idol can be a possession, an idol can be a habit, it can be an ambition. Idols come in various forms and types. Anything that compromises our devotion to the Lord has the potential of being an idol. Anything that competes with our affection for the Lord has the potential of being an idol. Beware of what you serve more than God. It has the potential of being an idol. Idolatry, in its simplest definition, is basically misplaced worth. Idolatry is misplaced worth. Again, we were all created in the image and likeness of God to have fellowship and relationship with him. And thus, when we worship him with our lips and we worship him with our lives, we are ascribing unto God worth and value and honor that only he is due. But when sin enters the equation, our sinful hearts then begin to turn our affection away from the Lord and onto other things and other people and other practices. And that becomes idolatry. So that whenever we ascribe worth or value or honor or serve other things besides God, then those things become idols. Now, God knew this propensity of the human heart to be idolatrous. That's why he gives us the first two of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, he specifically says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. 
And what commandment number one and commandment number two address is the potential for there to be idols of the hand, meaning idols that we actually carve and make and bow down to, and idols of the heart that we don't necessarily carve, but we have affections and devotion in our hearts and lives that are exalted above God's position and place in our lives. Now, even in the New Testament, this is not Old Testament only, even in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John the Apostle writes to his children, he says, Dear children, abstain from idols. Now, remember, John was writing 1 John 5, 21. He's writing in the first century. So Roman Empire was steeped in idolatry. So the people reading John's letter in 1 John 5 would have clearly understood, that's right, we've got to keep ourselves from idols, Roman Empire, Roman paganism, polytheism, statues everywhere. We've got to be careful to worship the only true God and not these idols around us. So they would have been keenly aware of the idols around them because they were more visible, more tangible. But friends, listen, there are idols still all around us. They're just much more sleek now. The designs and, and the edgy logos have now kind of lured us into idolatry. It's just all a lot more nicely designed these days. So we're going to have a little fun. I'm just going to kind of talk about some of these sleek little logos that maybe have become idols in your lives. Are you ready? Everybody ready? We're going to have a good time. Here's the first one. First one. Okay. Ever, ever kind of idolized a, a lady, a green mermaid? Some overrated, overpriced cup of coffee? Is that your God? Is King Street Coffee become your king, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, you know, we can make anything an idol. How about this? Maybe food is your idol. Food can become an idol. McDonald's, when they first started... The, the only size Coke you could get was five ounces. That's every cup at McDonald's first was only five ounces. Then, you know, lately they went up to 42 ounces. 42 ounces. Now, with all due respect to McDonald's, they decided, you know, 42 ounces, that's way too much. We're contributing to obesity in America, so we're going we're gonna to drop it down to 32 ounces. So you, 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 can, you can't supersize everything like you once could, but you can still get a large 32-ounce soft drink. Friends, that's still a fourth of a gallon when you think about it. And, but it sounds better to say 32 ounces, a large. It sounds better to say a large than to say, can I have a Big Mac French fries and a fourth of a gallon of Coke to go, please? <laughs> But that's what we're doing. Or maybe, maybe retail therapy is your God and this is your idol. It's just retail therapy, Pastor G. No, it's idolatry. It's the temple of Target. Perhaps Ben Franklin is your idol. Money, materialism is your God. Or how about this popular idol today, technology. Social media has stolen a lot of your time and devotion and money, right? Technology can be an idol. And look, and look at the logo too. It's an apple with a bite taken out of it. Any coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yeah, this is my idol. Yeah, my Ram truck. Yeah. My Ram truck, give me a 5.7 liter Hemi with a V8 engine. It's my idol. Maybe it's the Nike logo because sports has become your idol. Or maybe, could denim be your true religion? 
is shop till you drop more of a reality than a punchline? Now, the truth of the matter is that idols are not always bad in and of themselves. Oftentimes, idols are regular things that become ultimate things in our lives. Let's say that again. Not all things by themselves are bad. Idols are often regular things that become ultimate things, which we end up worshiping with our time, energy, and money. But let me get a little more serious. Because, again, anything can potentially become an idol if we serve it more than we really are serving the Lord and we have a conviction that we're more devoted to it and spend more money and more time. But on a serious note, maybe Jack Daniels is your idol. Maybe pornography is your idol. Sexual sin has become your idol. You know, a career can become an idol. A relationship can become an idol. Your own body can become an idol. Another person can become an idol. Everything in life has the potential to either complement our walk with God or compromise our walk with God. And anything that is elevated above God, either by devotion or our affection, has become an idol. Martin Luther once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Now what I love about Jeremiah is that he seems to be honest enough about his own heart and his own potential to fall into idolatry. And so he prays at the end of this chapter. So if you glance again at verses 23 and 24, I just want to close in the last few minutes we have left and just highlight three particular things about the prayer of Jeremiah that I think will help us with our idle hearts. In Jeremiah verses 10, verses 23 and 24, again, he says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. The first thing, if you're taking notes, first thing about Jeremiah's prayer that he acknowledges is, my life is not my own. My life is not my own. And parenthetically, what he's saying is, I belong to the Lord. I'm not the boss of my life. I'm not in control of my life. I need to submit to the Lord who is the owner of my life. And he says there in verse 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. I know. It's a Hebrew yada. It means experiential knowledge, not theoretical. He knows by experience. He understands in a relationship with God that he belongs to God and he is not his own person. We esteem in our culture people who are self-made people. Let me tell you something. Self-made people are often not under the subjection of something greater than self. And what we need to be about are people who recognize we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. We are not our own. And if he is really Lord of our lives, then we should commit our lives to his lordship and live our lives in such a way that everything about our lives is devoted unto him. That our lives and off our lips come worship to the Lord. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable act of worship. The Bible calls us to be people who are sold out to the Lord and surrendered to Him and and not duplicitous in our walk with Him where we're serving the world and then serving the Lord. We come into church, we're worshiping the Lord, and then we leave church and we worship other things. 
We are not our own. We belong to the Lord. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And then he adds, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Because in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about how even our very bodies should be offered as expressions of worship to the Lord. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. And what was the price that was paid for us? It was the blood of Jesus on a cross. That's why Paul later adds in Romans 14, 8, he says, whether I live or die, I belong to the Lord. We need to live our lives with that disposition. We belong to the Lord. He owns us. And therefore, if we belong to the Lord, then everything about my life belongs to the Lord. My time, my money, my passions, my possessions, my body, my career, my appetites. But that if I serve any of those things more than I serve the Lord, they have become idols. I've replaced the glory of God with the pleasure of self. My life is not my own. The other thing he prays here is, Lord, direct me. Lord, direct me. It's a very simple prayer, but he says it is not, the end of verse 23, it is not for man to direct his steps. He's saying, Lord, you direct me. He's saying, order my steps away from idols. Keep me on a path that hungers after you. The psalmist would write in Psalm 119, verse 133, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin, Lord, rule over me. Psalm 119, 133. We need to be the same in our, in our heart towards God. Lord, direct me. Keep me far from these things that could rule over me, far from the things that I could end up serving and worshiping and idolizing. Lord, I just want to serve and worship and idolize you. Direct my steps. Jonah would pray in the middle of the time that he was in the belly of the fish, In Jonah 2, verse 8, he said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. When we cling to things and idolize things and people and passions and pleasures and all this other stuff, rather than to the Lord, we actually forfeit something that could benefit us. We forfeit the grace that could be ours because we're clinging to worthless things that cannot help us. And then finally, Jeremiah says, and if I stray from your path that I'm praying you direct me on, number three, correct me. And what I love about Jeremiah, again, if you were here at the beginning of our study of Jeremiah, he is probably anywhere from 17 to 20 years of age when God calls him to be a prophet to the nation of Judah. And what I love about his prayer is he doesn't say, correct them. He says, correct me. Because he knows, but by the grace of God, I could be just like anybody else. And so, Lord, I need you as my loving father to correct me, admonish me, challenge me. You know, the correction of God is not a bad thing, only if you resist it. The correction of God is a loving thing when we respond to it. Oh, sure, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, only painful. That's true. But however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And so if we submit to God's correction, it produces for us a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives. Don't run from God. If he's correcting you, respond to it. Repent. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. And thank you that you love me enough that you've corrected me and pursued me because you don't want me to remain as I am. Even in Proverbs, we read Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. If some of you have been feeling the discipline of the Lord in your lives, then chalk it up for the fact that God loves you. Some of you are like, well, he loves me a lot. Well, okay, he loves you a lot. 
but it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. God loves us so much that as a loving Father, He will correct us. And sometimes there's some idols in our lives that we need correcting about. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this message from Jeremiah again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Under the teachings option, you can download our mobile app to stay connected with God's Word everywhere you go. You will also find our companion resources. These digital study guides are meant to give you even more insight into some of the studies Pastor Gary has done and are available free of charge to you. While you're there, take a minute to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify so you never miss another message. You'll also find links with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, we'd love to meet you in person. Come visit us. You'll find service times and more information about Cornerstone Chapel at cornerstoneconnection.cc. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. So put a marker in your Bible where we left off today in Jeremiah and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time. Thanks again for listening to today's teaching right here on Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.